We've been looking at the doctrines of eschatology. We talked last time about, which is the doctrine of future things, coming from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. And so obviously, uh, eschatos and logos, the teaching of last things. And we talked about Israel. Uh, It's difficult to put everything that ought to be said about the recovery of Israel in the last days into 45 minutes or an hour. And I don't know how long I took, but I didn't get finished. But hopefully it was reasonably adequate. Today, we want to talk about the last things for the church of Jesus Christ. And very frankly, uh, the more I meditated on this, the more it became obvious that there's really only one thing that the Lord gave us for the church to look for. He gave Israel a whole slug of things to watch for. And some of which we'll even point out because they occur during this present age and so they, it is wise on our part to observe them as well. But there is only one thing that the Lord gave us. Acts 1.11, the very first promise that the Lord gave the church before the church was ever born on the day of Pentecost. And I remind you once again, cup of cold water in the name of the Lord shall not lose its reward. Thank you, brother. I remind you once again uh, that uh, the church at its birth on the day of Pentecost, that was the beginning of the body of Christ, that was the birth of the bride of Christ, anticipating the arrival of her bridegroom and the promise that he gave us. And you remember the passage well, I'm quite sure. The disciples watched Jesus ascend in a cloud. And will you allow me to point this out again, though it's not germane to where we're going, that cloud was not an atmospheric condition. It was the saints that were being translated with the Lord Jesus from the Old Testament economy. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about the believers from the 11th chapter of Hebrews. You see that same thing in Revelation chapter 11, when the two witnesses are translated, they're translated In a cloud, the tribulation saints are translated with them. And so the Lord Jesus was taken up in a cloud. Grand witnesses from the Old Testament. And there appeared to them, there appeared to them two witnesses, two two men. (laughs) Sorry to do that to you. No, I'm not sorry. Um. Uh, Luke says two men. When Luke describes the transfiguration, as opposed to Matthew, he does not point this out. Luke uses the term, there appeared to him, uh, to them, that is those on the mount, two men. And they were identified there, you'll remember, as Moses and Elijah. Moses always stands for the law, Elijah always stands for the prophets, and everything that Jesus did was witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he states in Hebrews chapter 3, the righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so when we come to the translation of the Lord Jesus, we would rightly expect that his translation 
his ascension would be witnessed by these same two men. And that's why Luke uses that expression, like unto his gospel. At this point, he said there appeared two men. I will uh, go on to uh, note, if I may, that you have a like expression in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses who have the ministries of those same two men, but I won't get into all that right now, so I'll get back where I belong. So there appeared to these disciples two men, and they said, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus. Wonderful. (laughs) That you've seen taken up into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. He will return to the Mount of Olives. That's the message of the 14th of Zechariah. And the Mount of Olives, his feet will touch on the Mount of Olives and it will cleave in the midst. The anticipation of his coming in glory, which is very different than what we're talking about this morning. This same Jesus is going to appear in the heavens to translate his church to himself. We are going to meet him in the heavenlies. I'm preempting where we're going. Uh, The uh, message of this same Jesus, I know I'm laboring a point, but it is very important that we understand that he went away physically and he's going to return physically. He is not some apparition. He is not some gaseous thing out there. He is real flesh and bones, not blood, because the animating principle of a resurrection body is spirit. The animating principle of a natural body is blood. But when he spoke to his disciples, he said, Handle me and see, for spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have, because he had a new animating principle. Now, Jesus ascended ten days before the advent of the Holy Spirit. Leviticus chapter 8 points out that it took eight days to install the high priest in his high priestly office. And Jesus ascended one day. It took eight days for him to be installed and glorified in the presence of the Father. And early, that's nine days, yes? And early in the morning of the tenth day, the Holy Spirit came. And the advent of the Holy Spirit not only brought about the birth of the church, but it also testified to the fact that Jesus Christ had been glorified in the presence of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for all that will come unto God by him. What a wonderful testimony. Now, there are several passages in the Synoptic Gospels of which we ought to pay attention which suggests, suggest, I'm sorry, the times in which we live. Uh, the birth pangs, we've talked so much about this in the past, and the Apostle Paul addresses it, that the whole creation is groaning together in travail, awaiting the manifestation of the sons of God. Just as we have experienced new birth, so will the physical creation experience new birth. 
when Jesus Christ arrives in power and great glory. And so all of these earthquakes and for that matter, even these deadly diseases that are arising at this time for which they've not yet found uh, uh, cures, uh, natural disasters that are taking place, these are birth pangs for the physical creation anticipating the glorious liberty of the children of God. And the whole creation, Paul said, is going to be delivered in, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liber, liberty of the children of God. The Jesus, you'll remember, rebuked uh, the uh, Pharisees of his day for not reading the signs of the times. And by the way, I want to point out to you that uh, a close study of the book of the prophet Daniel, especially chapter 9, not only, but especially chapter 9, the Jews could have figured out when he was coming the first time. I mean, the date is almost set out there perfectly. And yet they missed it. They were looking for a wrong reason for his advent. They wanted to come in for him to come as Messiah in power and great glory. Uh-uh. Jesus said, I am come to bring peace on the earth, but I've come to bring a sword. And that's what we've experienced since his first coming. And in any case, Jesus rebuked them. And we need to pay attention to this because if he rebuked them for failing to see the signs of his first coming, What's our responsibility concerning the abundance of signs that he's given concerning his second coming in glory? And we're going to be gone before that, and we will be coming with him at that point. But these signs are beginning to develop in this very time. Luke chapter 19, for days will come upon you. Jesus speaking to the Jews. When your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a sad indictment. They should have, but they didn't. Matthew 16, familiar passage. Jesus said, you hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. You know, this has been <laughs> evidently a pretty much eternal problem. Uh, Psalm 79, uh, the psalmist says, we do not see our signs, neither is there any prophet who knows how long? Isn't that a sad commentary? I mean, the psalmist is lamenting the fact that the people of Israel at that time were failing to recognize the times in which they lived. How long? How long? Especially are those things addressed in Luke 21, and I'm going to take you there if, if I may, please, because this is an extensive passage, Luke chapter 21. Now, I want to draw a distinction between uh, the message of the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 and the message of its destruction in Luke 21. 
Matthew 24 is what is called in prophetic interpretation the law of double reference. Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus general under the Caesars, but Matthew's prophecy goes much beyond that historical event, event and he makes it yet future. Now, somebody might say, what's your legitimacy for that? You remember Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, flee to the mountains, that had already happened. Daniel's prophecy was already fulfilled, and yet Jesus took that same prophecy and made it still future. Many of the prophecies that you see in the Old Testament, particularly Babylon, have the value of the law of double reference. He talks about some historical event immediately, and he makes the end of it yet future. And the second fulfillment is always more important than the first. The first is merely an illustration of what's going to come. Now, in contrast to that, in Luke's prophecy, because Luke is not talking to the Jews, as is Matthew, May I say it again? All scripture is written for us, not all scripture is written to us. And Matthew is most certainly written for us, and grand is the value thereof, but it is not written to us. But Luke's gospel is Gentile in its character. And I want to point some of this out, if I may. Let me start from Verse 8, I'd like to read the whole chapter, but I won't do that to you. Verse 8, he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying that I am he, the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. You know, the people get called Messiah. You've heard that recently, I guess. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately then. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with regard to Israel. Then, he said to them, this is a transition in thought. Nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against ethnos, against ethnos, and kingdom against kingdom. And I suggested to you, and I gave you reasons for it at the time, which I cannot take time to go into now, that I am convinced that that took place with World War I, when the whole world came into world conflict, and ethnos rose against ethnos, and kingdom against kingdom that had never happened before. Not in that kind of degree. That's why they called it the war to end all wars. Didn't work, but that's what they said. And there will be earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilence. I wonder, are we seeing that now? I mean, look at Africa. I mean, that's a horrible situation that's taking place in Africa. Famines, pestilence, fearful sights, and great signs from the heavens as well. But before these things... now. Here's what Jesus says to the Jews at that time. Before these things begin to take place, they'll lay hands on you, persecute you, deliver you to the synagogues, the prisons. Uh, you'll be brought before kings, be 
and rulers for my name's sake. It will turn out for you as an occasion of testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand what you're going to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which we're adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist, and we may well come into that. Verse 20, please. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. He was talking about Titus, general under the Caesar, sacking Jerusalem. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not those who are in the country enter enter, enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written might be fulfilled. You remember what Jesus read in Luke 4? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, set at liberty those that are bruised, and preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book on a comma. And the rest of it reads, The days of vengeance of our God. And Jesus is here stating, that when this event takes place for Israel and Jerusalem is destroyed, that these are the beginnings of the days of vengeance, and they most surely have been. For since that time, Israel has experienced the most vile and violent persecutions of her whole history. Obviously, our mind goes immediately to the Holocaust, but that's not the only one you can think about. Look at what the Spanish Inquisition did to the Jews. Uh, you can go through a whole litany of history and the persecutions that were uh, uh, inaugurated. I think they call them pogroms, don't they? Something like that. That are inaugurated. Did I pronounce that wrong? Pogroms, pogroms, something like that. Uh, in Russia, turn of the century, same thing. Jews, under, that's what, uh, by the way, the whole film uh, Fiddler on the Roof was written about. Tremendous persecutions against this people just because they were Jews. These are the days of vengeance. And we've been in those days of vengeance since 73 AD. Look at verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword, led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until, here is a thrilling statement, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem ceased to be trampled by the Gentiles in 1967. And that puts us on the threshold of what he is doing. Now, God doesn't finish his accounts in November. So you need to realize that the day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years a day, and we see one of these developments take place, and man, I mean, we are ready. Here, we're going, Lord. I'm going to get up on a mountain with a white robe. We've had people do that in the past, you know. <laughs> A big group in Indiana many years ago figured out when it was the Lord was coming, and so they all put on white robes, quit their jobs, and went up and sat on a mountain waiting for the Lord to come. I'm sure they got hungry or wet or cold or something. I don't know. Embarrassing, embarrassing for the church since we don't know the day nor the hour. We do know the season, but we don't know the day nor the hour. 
the Apostle Paul said in his, the fifth of First Thessalonians, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant uh, that, uh, oh, I've lost the word now, I'm sorry. It's what I get for jumping. Uh, i got to read it now, I'm sorry. I apologize. First Thessalonians chapter 5, take a look there with me. Should be ashamed of myself. Second uh, Thessalonians won't help. I'm going to get that guy that made these thin pages. Let's let me start with verse one, please. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that that day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day would overtake you as a thief. You got that? You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night. Those who get drunk are drunken in the night. And so the text goes on. You, brethren, shouldn't get caught sleeping. Pay attention to what's going on around you. I believe that the times of the Gentiles, now don't confuse that with the fullness of the Gentiles. I've tried to emphasize this before. The fullness of the Gentiles makes reference to the very last Gentile that's born into the church of Jesus Christ, his body, which will uh, set the time schedule for the restoration of Israel and the church's translation. That's a very different thing. So the times of the Gentiles began with the Babylonian captivity in 606 B.C. and has preceded to this uh, present day. And if you don't want to agree with me about uh, 1967, that is perfectly all right because I am sure, and I think you are too, that we are most certainly in the last day. And Jesus goes on then to address from verse 25 those things that will accompany immediately his coming. And verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Matthew says that they'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming first. Then they see the Son of Man. Remember that a sign visited his first coming? That's how he deals with Israel. A sign will visit his second coming. Luke ignores that because he is not talking to Jews. For these, uh, I'm sorry, then they will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. And then he goes to verse 29 to remind us of the the, uh, parable of the fig tree. When the fig tree puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Again, You've got to parallel that with Ezekiel chapter 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, Then I am convinced that that happened in 1897 when Theodore Herzl began what we know today as Zionism. Excuse me. 
Mm. That is very good. Eat your heart out. The fig tree is one of those three trees that stands for Israel. I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. The olive tree stands for her covenant blessings. The vine stands for her spiritual blessings. The fig tree stands for her national blessings. And he is addressing the beginning of the nation, still not born again, but being restored politically to their own land. We'll move on from that. Now, all of these events anticipate his coming. But again, the one admonition from the Lord. We can look at all the synoptic gospels and all that they address, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all that they address with regard to the signs of his coming, Important they are because they focus primarily on his coming in glory. Not his, pardon me, not his coming for the church. I'm going to meddle here and put a parenthesis in. A lot of people look at Jesus' statements in Matthew. Two will be grinding at the mill, one taking the other less. Two working in the field, one taking the other left. And they say, that's the rapture of the church. No, it is not. They are taken in judgment. You remember the context of that? As it was in the days of Noah, so in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And when Noah entered into the ark, the flood came and, come on, took them all away. So it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be grinding into mill, one will be taken. In judgment, as in the flood, two will be in one bed. The one will be taken in judgment, as at the flood. That is not the rapture of the church, and don't put it in there. That is a very Jewish context, and it addresses his coming in the last day when he calls out of Israel all things that offend. Thus will, was the statement of Ezekiel and Daniel says he's going to remove all those who work deceitfully against the covenant. Now, where did I get you? How did I get on that anyway? Oh, so all the synoptic gospels address themselves to his coming in glory. Wonderful. But John, on the other hand, which is uniquely that gospel which is addressed to the church, Matthew to Israel, Luke to the Gentile church, Mark to the church at Rome, which is also Gentile, very important, but John to the church. You will find nothing of the record of the Olivet Discourse in John, nothing. The only thing that John has to say about his coming is what Jesus said to his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. I'm going to prepare a place, an abiding place is the Greek word. 
He has one for redeemed babies. He has one for Israel. He has one for Gentiles. And he's got a unique one for the church. He's not talking about some great big beautiful house he's going to build for you up there. That's not the idea of it at all. It is that God has categories of the redeemed. And each of the redeemed will abide in his place. And as I've emphasized to you before, the church is the only body of the redeemed that's promised, while all of them will have resurrection bodies. The church is the only one that is promised a body like unto the body of his glory, because the bride has to have the appearance of the bridegroom. So John just addresses himself to the translation of the church. Now I want you to come with me to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, you know, Jesus is careful to point out to us that we ought not to judge people. And I look at that in terms of personal. You know, he says we should speak evil of no man. That's probably one of the toughest things he ever told me to do. Because I can think a lot of things to say about some men. But I'm sure they would with me too. So it would be a fair exchange. Mm. But for Second uh, Thessalonians chapter one, did I say that? Okay, sometimes I say first when I mean second, and vice versa. I think it was several weeks back. I wanted you in Ezekiel, and I sent you to Exodus, didn't I? That was a fun trip, wasn't it? <laughs> All right, look at uh, one Thessalonians and chapter one, two Thessy. I just did it. Second Thessalonians and chapter one. And verse 3 and following. And Paul said, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. May I take a secular uh, a bunny path right here? I don't know if you all have seen it yet or not, but the Interstate Battery Company is owned by believers, faithful Believers who give testimony to their relationship with Christ. And they're putting out a new ad with all of the hatred and venom and so forth that's floating around in the country today. They put an ad out declaring we ought to love one another. Of course, an extensive ad. And I thought, my yes, if ever. The love you have abounds toward each other, so that, verse 4, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecution and tribulations that you endure. Now, the Thessalonians were really going through it. Severe persecutions were levied on the church in that area. Verse 5, which is a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Paul said, if we suffer with him, we reign with him. Since it is a righteous, now this is a verse I'm after. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, they're going to get it. I think about Hollywood and the venomous things that they do against righteousness and against God. 
I think of so many politicians, thank God not all, the venom and the hatred that they manifest toward God. You remember a preacher came in praying one time, asking God to forgive us for all the sins we'd committed, and a bunch of those guys got up and walked out. I should like very much to have a list of their names so that I could speak evil of no man. Verse 7, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified and all of his saints to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you was believed now i'm going to skip you down chapter two now because these thessalonians were in such tribulation because they were experiencing such uh, uh, horrendous attacks from satan a lot of those Thessalonian believers had determined that they were already in the tribulation. Now the Apostle Paul said the church must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. But there's a difference between tribulation that we go through and the tribulation, the great one, as it's so stated, about which Matthew speaks, about which Luke speaks that we read a moment ago. And so Paul was writing this epistle to encourage the Thessalonians to know that they were not in the great tribulation. So I must read from chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. That's the first thing we look for. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for... the. No, somebody said, we're not looking for even the undertaker, we're looking for the upper taker. You ought to have always that anticipation of the resurrection and the translation of the living. Verse 2, and not to be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as from us. Somebody wrote this outfit a letter, signed Paul's name to it, and told him they were in a tribulation. So not even a letter as from us as though that the day of Christ is the way your King James reads. Very regrettable rendering. The Greek word is not Christos, it is Kurios. And it properly reads as though the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, uh, there's a great deal of debate over this third verse and one portion of it, and I'm going to throw out both of them to you. First of all, the falling away is thought of in the Greek uh, uh, word is apostasia. And the word simply means that we hear apostasy in that, but the word simply means to go away. Just it, just apo, away. That's the prefix, I think, isn't it, Pat, for 
uh, going up. Yes. And then the other, uh, and so many of them interpret that as the great apostasy of the last days, which is true. There is an apostasy in the last day, and we're all witnessing that. But the other view is the taking away, the going away. May I read it as such? That day will not come first unless the going away comes first and the man of sin be revealed. What did he say in the previous verses? Verse 1, for example, our gathering together unto him. Isn't that in the context? And Kenneth Wiest, professor of Greek at Moody Bible Institute for years, a grand old man, heard him speak when I was in college, just a grand old man. He was very old then. I'm sure he's with the Lord now. But he took this verse in his book on Thessalonians, and he took this verse and he declared emphatically that verse 3 was addressing the translation of the church of Jesus Christ. That day will not come unless that departure, was the way he translated it, unless that departure takes place first. Coming back to where I ought to be. First Thessalonians, of course, is that contains that great passage on the translation. But I want to point out to you that every chapter of First Thessalonians ends with a statement with regard to the coming of Christ for his church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. Paul said, we have not been appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. We are not appointed to the tribulation. I know there are a lot of good saints out there that don't believe in a pre-tribulationary translation of the church. They believe the church is going to go through the tribulation. It is a terrible mistaken of identity. The tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. It belongs to Israel. It does not belong to us. And they say, well, we don't deserve to be delivered from the tribulation. Hallelujah. Amen. I can't think one thing that God ever did for us that we deserved. Not one. And so in this verse, he emphasizes that we're waiting for the Lord. We're not waiting for wrath. That is not our portion that we are waiting for the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing, it is, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Uh, one of the crowns that uh, believers will be offered, granted in that day, is the crown of rejoicing. And the crown of rejoicing is given for believers whom we have instrumentally, personally, or indirectly brought to Christ. And that's what Paul is stating here. You are my crown of rejoicing in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. 
1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. By the way, he does that. Have you tried? Yeah. He does that. We will stand in his presence, Paul said in Ephesians, in that day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Uh, You know, back in the days when uh, women uh, laundered clothes, but they also repaired them. I guess they still do it. I don't know. My wife wanted to darn my socks for me the other day, so I could just picture her darn, 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 darn. But, you know, jeans had tendencies to ravel. You know, the ends had tendency. And here's this little raveling hanging down there. You know, it's been washed. It's been ironed. But here's this any such thing. <laughs> you will stand perfect in his presence in that day. Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You are going to him. You are returning with him. The scripture says he comes in a cloud. Same cloud. All of his believers. (laughs) Sorry. And then finally... 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'm going to hold that one if I may because it's the heart of the book. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That is totally and wholly set you apart to him. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we address the nature of our being, we usually say body, soul, and spirit. God never does that. It is always spirit, soul, and body. God always begins with the most holy and moves to the less holy. And here is this completed individual in his presence as God created him in the beginning. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the the, the Hebrew word is ruach. He breathed into his knowledge, uh, nostrils ruach, the spirit of life. And man became a living soul, a tripartite being, just as God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Tripartite, so are we his people. Now, let me take you to 1 Thessalonians 4. Longer passage, so we have to look at this. Of course, verse 13 begins the particular text that we're looking at, but there are a couple of things in this text that become very interesting. They are to me anyway. Verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want to point something out here that's very important, I think, because there are those believers who hold to a doctrine called soul sleep. That is that when a believer dies, he goes into the grave and he's asleep in the grave, uh, unconscious until the Lord comes and fulfilling this passage. Uh, 
No. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When a believer dies, his body goes to the grave, he goes to the paradise of God in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, when all of the martyrs are gathered under the altar, the scripture says, I saw the souls of them who had been beheaded for the testimony of Christ. No bodies yet. Paul said, I don't want you to be found naked, but I want you to be clothed upon with your house which is from heaven. When we get to uh, paradise before the Lord comes, if we do, and I'm going to beat a lot of you, I'm sure of that, unless he does come, uh, I'm going to be naked. I'm sure that will be a sight. No, my, my spirit will be in the heavenlies. I don't know what that form takes. But my spirit will be in the heavenlies anticipating the return of the body. Now, the word sleep that Paul uses here is simply a metaphor for the state of the body. It has nothing to do with the spirit of man. It is a metaphor for the state of the body. He doesn't want to say they're dead. Now, he does use that term in a moment, and we'll see why. But he refers to them in this verse, and again in verse 15, as asleep. It is a metaphorical view of those that are in the grave. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. <laughs> Funny path there, but I won't take that here that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. One of the suggestions that was being held by certain of the Thessalonian believers is if you died before the Lord came, you couldn't go. You missed it. And so Paul is encouraging them to know nobody's getting left. You will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself, that's reflexive middle. Now Pat could handle this a little better than I because he's the Greek scholar. But we don't have in our English language a reflexive middle voice. And if we were to render this usage literally, it would read, Now the Lord himself and not another will descend from heaven for his own benefit. He's coming to get us for his own benefit. Can you appreciate that? I mean, certainly he's doing this for us, but the big issue is he's doing it for himself because Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for it. And there is no way that you can put sufficient emphasis on that phrase, Christ loved the church. It is infinite. It is all-pervading. It covers everything. Talk about love covering a multitude of sins. We haven't seen the beginning of it until we see 
him in that day when he translates us and we understand that he has done it for himself. So the Lord descends himself from heaven with a shout. Now, I realize this is just lamology and speculation, but I believe it. Oh, pardon me. That that shout is going to be a quote from Psalm, I'm sorry, from uh, Song of Solomon, thank you. Chapter 2 and verse 10. Actually, it's stated twice. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For the winter is over and gone. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Do you remember that God the Father spoke to Jesus on one occasion? Everybody around said it thundered. They heard a sound. They heard no articulated words. I believe the same thing will happen in that day. That the world we're here will hear what? Thunder maybe, I don't know. But a great sound, they will not hear articulated words. But you will hear articulated words. If you don't hear them, you're in trouble. I mean, too late, yes. Serious trouble. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. A shout. And then, and that's the Lord himself. And then the voice of the archangel. Now, I realize this is a lot of speculation, but nonetheless, I, I see it in Psalm 89 and verse 15. You know, the, the Lord has made it very plain that trumpet sounds uh, are associated with uh, resurrection. We'll see that momentarily, but... The voice of the archangel announces what God is about to do. Um, somebody said to me one time, why does God even bother with angels? Well, first I'm going to say, I don't know. It's none of my business. But then I know he does. Uh, angels are important to the economy of God in the world. He uses them to govern nations. You can see that, of course, in Daniel chapter 10. God is running the world with angels. I don't know what kind we just got, but I hope in his mercy. I always hope in his mercy. And so we're going to hear the voice of the archangel, maybe the same thunder, I don't know. He's going to, you know, I, I can just see him up there right now saying to the Lord, now? And the Lord's saying, not now. A little later on, maybe, as he watches the events that take place in the earth. Now? Not now. And one of these days, the Lord's going to say, now. And the angel is going to cry, my opinion. Psalm 89. Blessed are those who know the joyful sound they shall 
Arise, O Lord, in, when the, uh, in, with the fruit of thy countenance. My, what a statement. I'm declaring, the angel is saying, what God is about to do. That shout you just heard, this is what God is about to do. Arise, arise, my love. They shall arise with his image in that day. And then the last thing you see in this passage, I've got to get on with it, is the trumpet of God. Now, uh, Leviticus makes it very plain, especially Leviticus 23, uh, Numbers also, Numbers chapter 10, that trumpets were used to assemble his people for varying reasons. You know, the old cavalry back in the mid-1800s, they did that. You remember, he'd say to the bugler, the commander would say to the bugler, sound recall, uh, sound charge, sound assembly. There were all of these various bugle calls, since they didn't have cell phones, all these various bugle calls that were intended uh, to assemble his men for whatever necessary purpose. You can see it in Numbers chapter 10. Not only were there shofars, but there were silver trumpets. And those silver trumpets that are addressed there were intended to assemble the people of God. When those trumpets were sounded, the people of God, all Israel, came together to hear, pardon me, the word of the Lord and what God was going to uh, do with them. And the fact that they were silver is very important because that is the medal of redemption in the word of God. And the trumpet of God is, and I don't think God personally blows this trumpet. I think the voice of the archangel once stated is the, the uh, same archangel is going to blow that trumpet. By the way, who is the archangel? Come on. Michael. He's the only one in the whole of Holy Writ who is called an archangel. The only one. And he is going to sound that trumpet having announced what God was doing. And maybe announces it for the whole of heaven to know. I don't know. And when the trumpet of God sounds, then the dead in Christ will rise first. That's going to be a calamitous thing. You know that? I mean, I don't know how God's going to do it. He could bring those, gray, those uh, uh, sleeping bodies out of the grave without even disturbing one piece of dust. You remember when he appeared to the disciples in a resurrection body in a room before his ascension? He just showed up in the room. He may do the same thing, I don't know, but I'd rather see him just bust them open. I think that would be wonderful. Well, you remember after his resurrection, the scripture says that many of the bodies of the Old Testament saints came out of their graves. I think they just opened up. You know, they had stones rolled over them or whatever in those days. They just opened up and they were seen walking about Jerusalem. And that was great consternation for a whole lot of people. And they were a part of that cloud that ascended with him. Into the presence of the Lord. I don't know how he's going to do it. But he's going to do it. 
And the dead in Christ will rise first. Somebody said they got six feet further to go, so they got to have a head start. That's kind of a silly thought, but something to think about. 17, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He's coming to meet us. And thus shall we always, ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you find that comforting? I find that comforting. Yes. And we will meet him in the air. And as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, this corruption will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. And death, the last enemy that shall be swallowed up in victory, and death shall be destroyed. I want you to come with me for one last verse, please, to the 19th of the Revelation. Don't say revelations. It isn't plural, it's singular. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. To show to his churches those things which must shortly come to pass. Revelation chapter 4 could be talked about. We don't have time to do that now. A great passage, he said. I heard a voice saying, come up here. When he called the church to himself. Revelation 19 verse 7. Here's the culmination of everything we anticipate. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb did come. It's in the past tense. And his wife has made herself ready. You notice she's always the bride prior to this point. Now she's the wife. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteousnesses of the saints. And he said to me, right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. The wedding takes place in the heavenlies because that's private and it belongs to the family. The marriage supper takes place on the earth, a la Matthew 22, because that's public and it belongs to the judgment of the nations. Rejoice and be glad, beloved. One day it'll thunder. And you'll hear a cry, Arise, my love, my fair one, come away. Let's stand and pray. Our Father, you are indeed our hope and our joy. We have but one anticipation. With all the turmoil that goes on in the world, the heathen raging and the peoples imagining vain things, you will in that day set your king on your holy hill of Zion and your bride will be next to him. We bless you and give you thanks. Amen.